Welcome to this Stroke Journey podcast, brought to you by the National Stroke Education Center at the University of Cincinnati, your premier source for comprehensive diagnostic and therapeutic stroke education from the pre-hospital and emergency settings through the ICU and rehabilitation. Please welcome today's host, Dr. Jordan Bonomo. Hello. Thank you for joining us for this podcast recording of the National Stroke Education Center. I'm Jordan Bonomo, an emergency physician and neurointensivist at the University of Cincinnati. I'm joined today by my colleague, Dr. Madeline Furch, pharmacist extraordinaire, critical care board certified pharmacist, and the lead neurocritical care pharmacist at the University of Cincinnati in our neuro ICU. Today, we're going to be talking about the barriers to success when implementing care pathways for ICH patients. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Furch. Thank you for having me. All right. It's a big topic, right? Yeah. How do you take care of these ICH patients? And we all know that the pathways which we create in boardrooms and on whiteboards look really good. And then we put them on paper and they look even better. And then we try to implement them and sort of all hell can break loose. Yeah, for sure. In your experience taking care of these patients, what do you see as the barriers? What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? Yeah, so when I was um, trying to prepare, you know, topics for today, I kind of thought about the whole medication use process and thought about, you know, barriers that, you know, we as a health system have encountered. So really from prescribing all the way to monitoring, we've found some things that we were not expecting for sure. So right off the bat from prescribing, it seems, you know, real easy. You know, the patient presents with a head bleed, they're on a blood thinner, but determining the right uh, reversal agent if needed can be difficult. Um, obtaining an accurate medical history is, can be very challenging, even with the EMR, because we do get a lot of the fill history that comes through, but depending if the patient's fully registered or not, can be challenging because it won't link, and then you're trying to do detective work to try to figure out if they're on anything. <laughs> so it can be very hard just to even figure out if you need a reversal agent and then if you do which one because uh, the data you know depending on what it is can be a little little hairy then there's lots of other obstacles which we can talk about later too with all the different hospital formularies and uh, things that we've come into so I find it fascinating that another critical care provider says the EHR isn't as helpful as the government told us <laughs> it was going to be I'm personally shocked yeah. uh, by this information. It's great when, you know, SureScripts works and it pulls through, but sometimes, you know, it unfortunately doesn't pull through in a timely fashion when you're in the emergency department trying to figure out uh, what blood thinner or if a patient is on a blood thinner. And I've noted that even though they have an anticoagulant listed, you don't know if they're taking it. Yeah, for sure. Right? And you don't know if they're borrowing grandmas or yep. whatnot. Um, yeah. And that, that's always challenging. And I think you brought up the good point that many of our ICH patients are anhistoric. They just don't have the capacity to communicate well and family's not there yet. And right. Ambulances drive fast and theoretically families drive slower. So so uh, we, we are sort of at a loss. So then we implement all of these laboratory testing yep, strategies, many exactly. of which are fraught with error as well. So as someone who takes care of these patients, I'll often order the tag and the anti-10A because I have no idea what's going on. How comfortable are you making decisions based on that? I mean, there's a significant delay, right? The flash to bang from order to result yeah. can be quite a while. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, you can get a POC INR, which, you know, will come back within minutes. So that can be helpful if, you know, you're on warfarin or something like that. But the INR is not reliable, as you alluded to, for our direct uh, or our DOAX. So I don't feel comfortable based if a patient has a normal INR saying that they aren't on any blood thinners or a normal tag even potentially. Most of the time, the R time will be affected with 
most of our DOACs, but not, you know, consistently, reliably yeah. enough to use that as your single agent. And an anti-10A is very specific or very sensitive, um, not calibrated for our uh, oral anti-10A inhibitors. But if it's detectable, then you can be very confident the patient has some um, on board. But at least at our institution, those take 30 to 45 minutes to turn around. So if you have a patient that uh, has an ICH and you know you have a reliable history, I'm not going to wait for that anti-10A to come back, but it puts it in a hard situation where these patients can't give you history, you don't have any documented fill history. Maybe, you know, five years ago, it's on their record that they were maybe on rivaroxaban. So do you wait 45 minutes for that anti-10A to come back or do you just give it? So it can be very precarious for sure. Um, so those are definitely tough situations where you don't have reliable, accurate history having to wait on that anti-10A depending, you know, on the agent that they might be on it. I, I literally <laughs> had this patient this weekend when yeah. I was working. I think one of the other things that we tend to struggle with when we build these care pathways um, and we're trying to figure out who gets what, we have this term that we throw around, life-threatening hemorrhage. Right. What exactly yeah. is that, right? As a neurointensivist, yeah. I occasionally debate that with myself. Right. And we know that many of the patients who would potentially even benefit from these medications were excluded from clinical trials because their GCS score was too low at right. presentation. Yeah. It's like GCS less than seven or right. a large bleed. Yeah. But those are the ones that are <laughs> yeah, life-threatening exactly. in my mind. So it's the yeah. others where it's like it's life-threatening, but it's not totally done yet, right? Yeah. There's still a chance and you might help them. So I, yeah, these become really challenging. You brought up some stuff around order entry, which I found interesting. And I, I am so blessed to have people like you do that in the background. Yeah. But that is really complicated. Right? It is. Over the past, I think it was maybe four years ago, we've really optimized our ordering of these medications. So we made an entire order set. If you just type in reversal, we'll have a reversal order set come through. And then you click what the anticoagulant is of choice, and then it'll lead you to the reversal agent. And then uh, specifically with indexinet alpha and um, prothrombin complex, it, the dosing can be kind of complex, which, you know, when you're reading it on paper, it seems like all oh, very straightforward. But when you're pressed in a critical situation like that, errors are made and you might choose the wrong dosing. So the order set helps guide providers to choose the right dosing based on in the case of warfarin, based on what their INR is, and then for indexinet alpha, based on um, when the last dose was, and then also what their dosing is. So we've tried to streamline that as best we can because of, you know, some mishaps that we've seen in the mm -hmm. past <laughs> a couple of years. Mishap seems like a nice yeah. euphemism for medical error. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you, when when it's really hitting the fan, nothing seems straightforward. No, right? exactly. Yeah. Um, and you have excited clinicians barking out, let's reverse them. And then you have a pharmacist in the background trying to interpret what that actually means, right? Are we doing full reversal, partial reversal? Yeah. I find that interesting. When you think about the, the pathways and, and they are existing in the pre-hospital environment, the ED, and then the ICU, they're actually a little bit different, frankly. Yeah. Um, and I think part of it's because of the what I would consider the area under the curve for chaos, right? There's a ton of chaos when you've got rotors spinning above you and you're in the field. Oh, yeah. The ED can be amazing or 
you know, dust bunnies and crickets. You never know. Um, and then the ICU tends to have sort of a general flow to it. Right. I feel like sometimes it's easier in the ICU to do the methodical work that's necessary to determine where we are on our pathways. Yeah, and you have a more full picture usually in the ICU. Yeah, because the ED's well. done the yeah, job getting Yeah, because the ED's done the dirty work. Yeah, and I should say I did work um, before in you know, the past six months. I was in the ED like most of the time. So very familiar with, <laughs> with that setting as well. But yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely hard when you're trying to put all the pieces together in a time-sensitive manner because the more we learn, it's maybe just like, you know, ischemic stroke with ICH that time is of essence, which we've always known that, but even more so, more literature is coming out that we need to get these agents in as soon as we can. So. And that would stand to reason, right? Yeah. Well, one need not prove that with right. the do-nothing exactly. trials versus the do-something yeah, fast trials. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I totally agree. Um, all right. So as a, as a critical care pharmacist running a neuro ICU, um, if you could press a button and flip one switch to make all of this easier for you, and we're talking about ICH management and reversal, what would that button be? What would you create? Well, that's a good question. I think um, some of the hardest things, honestly, all stems around uh, the administration and compounding and getting to the bedside quickly. Because in an ideal world, you'd have a reversal agent that is readily stocked in the omnicells that pharmacy and nursing could readily access and be easy to administer and give to the patient as soon as you've you know done all your due diligence and making sure that the patient needs it. Where the biggest struggles I think we've come through is in the the ordering like like so we tried to streamline and then the administration because um, some of these agents can be a little bit more complex for sure on the nursing side of things and we've and then like you're talking about the transitions of care too we've come into situations that complicate it if you're starting a reversal agent outside hospital making sure that the whole drug is infused by the time they get to the transferring facility so I think the administration ease of administration would greatly improve things as well. You just hit on something that I haven't really thought about in a while. So when we gave TPA for stroke, we would always ensure that we had a carrier running behind it at the same rate to make sure you could flush your lines. Yeah. Otherwise, you missed a few milligrams, sometimes quite a bit. Yeah, it can be, tubing. yeah, it could be almost half the dose. And COVID, yeah. you got, we got 35 <laughs> feet of tubing yeah. now, right? What advice would you give to your physicians and your nursing staff at centers um, around that thing you just brought up, ensuring that total dose of reversal agent has been given prior to uh, cessation of the infusion? Yeah, so we've, um, this is something that we've also recently changed because specifically it's, for profile complex or case centers, the brand name, that's just IV push. Um, can be a little bit more nursing intensive because they had to slow push it over 10 minutes. But indexin and alpha is the one that gets a little bit more uh, complex to administer, if you will, because you need to give a bolus over 15 minutes and then there's a continuous infusion over two hours. But as you uh, astutely pointed out, the continuous infusion, the volume is only 40 mLs. And in the tubing, on at least our plum sets, it's 20 mLs. So if you uh, don't run any carrier fluid through that, you're losing half of your dose, which is obviously not ideal. So um, recently what we have changed to is making um, one bag system. So we put the entire dose in one bag and then use our, um, our pump skin bolus from the bag. So we'll bolus the bolus dose and then start the continuous infusion right after that and then we've done a lot of nursing education in the ED and the ICU the applicable ICUs that once the um, bag is empty to swap it out with a normal saline bag and then just continue to let the pump run to make sure that the total dose is infused. How long do you let the pump run? 
until it alarms. So you set the total volume and then you just let that total volume run. So it's over two hours. And what do you set the total volume to? It depends on the dose, but like 40 ml. 40 ml. Just to make sure you clear the tubes twice. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Because you get 20 in the table. Yeah. You're right. Well, it's really interesting, and I, I've always wondered about this because you, you pick a patient up at an outside hospital um, in a helicopter, right? And they've been running on some smart pump in the ED, and you switch them to your pump for the aircraft, and then you fly to the ICU or the ED, and then you're going to transition that pump to another pump. Right. Um, how do we make sure we're not missing uh, dose? Well, that's an excellent question, which we're still trying to figure out the optimal answer for because everyone's pumps are different. So you would think it'd be a seamless <laughs> transition, but um, it's very hard to not lose the the medication that's already been primed in that line so that is something that we're still um, trying to work through the best solution for because we've um, I've had it and I know my colleagues have where air care is waiting to leave but there's still an hour left on that infusion so we're trying to pull out all the medication from the lot it's yeah it's uh not ideal not situation ideal. for sure. Okay, that's, so. a, that's a pretty easy uh, barrier <laughs> That's to probably identify. one of the bigger barriers yeah. that we're trying to battle through. But what, in the past, the best solution that um, we've done is just obviously let it run through. And unfortunately, that's you know not ideal for the transferring facility or, or transferring um, team, if you will, or kept a pump. You know, it's it's not we don't have a good answer yet and we're still trying to meet with our transport teams to try to figure out the best thing to do in those cases. That seemed, that really does seem like a challenge. Let me ask you one more question. As a board certified critical care pharmacist, right? So you're a PhD level pharmacist, you got, to, you got all this boarding behind you and you run a neuro ICU. Um, and it's, it's great for those of us who work there. You're kind of a unicorn, right? There are not a lot of you running around, especially in the neuro universe. For places that don't have a you, what's the next best option? What should they be doing, right? Because lots of places can't afford a you. Lots of places don't actually have a need for a you full time, but they need you when they need you. Is there telepharmacy? Like what? What are the options right now in, in your universe? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, there are telemedicine critical care physicians available currently. I don't know how many there are, you know, the market, but I, I do know that that is um, something that is offered. So that's an option. Otherwise, I mean, it just kind of gets into the having the medication available, but that takes a lot of nursing education. And specifically, a lot of these medications are not appropriate to be compounded at bedside. So you, if you don't have 24 hour pharmacy, it can get very, very challenging. So. so if I'm hearing this right, and it's what I've been hearing for the last 25 years, pharmacists are the most important person on a team, right? Well, I mean, I don't want to my own horn, but Yeah, but probably, right? No, you know, I, right? I agree. I, what I've always said is if, if you guys were willing to do procedures, I'm not sure I'd be that helpful at the bedside. <laughs> Well, Dr. Forge, I really appreciate you spending uh, your time with us for this roundtable today. And thank you at home uh, for listening. This has been a recording of the National Stroke Education Center. Thanks for listening today. This Stroke Journey podcast is a collaboration between the National Stroke Education Center, M. Craig International, and MedEd On The Go. For more comprehensive, high-quality educational resources for healthcare professionals, please visit strokejourney.com.